Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 25, Shades of Grey. On September 1st, 1939, SS troops dressed up as Polish soldiers, put German uniforms on concentration camp prisoners, and shot them at a German radio station near the German-Polish border. And with this sham of an excuse, German forces stationed in place days before invaded Poland. But as the Nazis already knew, there were some three million Polish Jews that had to be dealt with. And as cruel as the invaders will be, what with executions, rapes, and random shootings of entire families or communities, this was no way to rid the world of those three million Jews. Facing this truth, a military report was put out that same month of the invasion. Quote, it is a mistake to massacre some 10,000 Jews and Poles, as is being done at present. This will not eradicate the idea of a Polish state, nor will the Jews be exterminated. Unquote. Clearly, something larger, more systematic was needed in order to carry out Hitler's wishes for greater Germany, Europe, and eventually the world. But back to those three million Polish Jews. As this number was much larger than the number of Jews now within the current Greater Germany, a better or faster system was needed to get rid of them. So, Hermann Rotk, a Dehamag executive just under Heidinger, wrote to Watson in New York on September 9th, only days into the battle in Eastern Europe, and asked if New York could send Dehamag some of their newest machines the Model 405 specifically. As these machines were very expensive, made with materials in short supply in Germany, therefore its price was hard to come by, this meant there were very few in Europe at the moment. Rotk's letter started out with reminding Watson that he had, only last summer, offered to lend a few of those machines to Dehomag, and now the Nazi government had requested this specific model for their increased needs. The details of those needs were left out of the letter. But just to give an example of what those machines could do, the Model 405 in just 42 hours could create alphabetized lists and calculate 1.2 million multiplications. The machines the Nazis were working with at the moment in Poland were the Model 601. Those machines would need 800 hours to duplicate that same amount of work. Clearly, this was unacceptable due to what the SS were facing in Poland. Roth's letter ended with a loan, quote, will undoubtedly be greatly appreciated in many and especially responsible circles, unquote. But what Watson thought should have been clear was that there was a war on now. He couldn't simply just load up expensive and vital machines and send them to a country that had just started World War II. Besides, he certainly wasn't going to do Heidinger, Rotk, and Germany this huge favor for nothing. So Heidinger backed down on his latest campaign to infuriate Watson, his threat to sell one of his ten shares of stock, which would make Dehelmag truly a foreign corporation, which the Nazis would have then gleefully taken over. Now somewhat mollified, Watson offered to send Heidinger more cash to deal with his tax problem. But Heidinger said no. That would only increase his tax problem if German tax officials found out. He wanted those machines. Those were the only things that could get these men off his back 
and these men had the authority and power to make him disappear. Because not only were the tax officials knocking on his door, but so too were men in SS uniforms. In desperation, Heidegger took a page from those SS men's book and simply explained to the head office of IBM Europe that the few Model 405 machines in Europe were now in Nazi-controlled Austria. All he had to do was tell those dark-uniformed men where the machines were. They would have no compunction in picking up a phone and having those machines confiscated and transported to where they were needed, Warsaw. Watson, through intermediaries in Geneva, Switzerland, there was a war on, got a message back to Heidinger. What, those machines? <laughs> of course you can borrow them. Darn this layered communication, causing more misunderstandings. Please, I want you to have them. Just before Watson caved into Heidinger regarding the Model 405's machine, the beginning of the truly dark times were coming to the Jews of Poland. On September 21, 1939, with the war in Poland all but over, Reinhard Heydrich, the chief of Himmler's security service, the SD, chaired a top-secret meeting in Berlin. When all was said and done, memos went out to the leaders of his groups, the Endstadtgruppen, whose only function was to locate and exterminate Jews. But as hard as these men worked at their job, the numbers were simply stacked against them. Heydrich's memo was titled, quote, The Jewish Question in the Occupied Territory, unquote. Its opening statement read, quote, With reference to the conference which took place today in Berlin, I would like to point out once more that the total measures planned, i.e., the final aim, are to be kept strictly secret. Unquote. It went on to list their long-term goal, the total eradication of all Jews within German-occupied territory, and the short-term goals, the complete and efficient organization needed to guarantee the success of the long-term goal, quote, both from a technical and the economic point of view. Unquote. As Heydrich saw it, the process was rather straightforward. However, not easy. First, the Jews had to be gathered and placed into a centralized location. Still, within this location, there would be numerous subgroups, each managed by a Jewish council of elders. The elders would maintain order by making sure their charges obeyed all rules of the occupying force. Then the Jews themselves would help organize and pay for a complete census, thus giving Heydrich what he needed to plan out the final aim. At the center of this building storm of death was Adam Zerenyauko, who was, almost randomly, chosen as the chairman of the Jewish Council in Warsaw. The former capital held just over one million souls, and about a third of them were Jewish. Heydrich wanted all the Jews gathered up and placed in a small section of the city, but also, after the census was to take place, all other Jews on Germany's side of Poland were to be brought to this location as well. Throughout October, Zerniako was summoned to meet with SS officials about the upcoming census. The Germans were exacting and menacing about what they wanted and what would happen if everything didn't go according to plan. And on October 28th, the growing Jewish ghetto in Warsaw came to a complete stop as the census was taken. 
Thousands upon thousands of census forms were brought to the Jewish Community Center and filled out, all under the eyes of the SS. And as impressive as this feat was, the organization and execution of such a large census, it paled in comparison to the fact that, in just over 48 hours, all the forms had been counted and processed. There were some 360,000 Jews in Warsaw. But by the time the baptized Jews and racial Jews were added, the total number grew to 366,000. This latter addition was on December 6th. The machines Heidegger had recently angled for had already paid off, handsomely. The Jews already in the city and the ones soon to be brought in would all be kept in the Naluki district. How they made out was their business. Soon bobbed wire would be strung up and later a wall constructed. But the prisoners inside were already told never to wander around at night and never to leave. The punishment for violating these few rules was death. But for the oppressors and those connected, things were going well. The Nazi party was more than impressed with how quickly Hollerth technology had given Heydrich and his boots on the ground in former Poland the information about the emerging Jewish ghetto. Now the remaining Jews outside the capital could undergo a census and all Jews found transported to the Naluki area. As for Dehomog, the lull of a temporary truce with New York was the result of a satisfied Berlin, and this was due to the achievement of the Model 405 machines, which led Erman Rock to send Watson a warm, heartfelt letter, hoping his Christmas would be a wonderful one with his family, and that he hoped the leader of IBM's New Year was pleasing. And, by the way, thanks for loaning Dehomog the fastest machines IBM had. As for IBM, the news was equally fortuitous. Dehomog profits from 1939 had doubled compared to the previous year. Now, Watson and his executives had to figure out how to make 3.9 million Reichmarks look like much less, preferably a loss. As for Nazi Germany, their new year was everything one could hope for. In the spring, parts of Scandinavia was conquered, then the Low Countries, then France. And right behind those tanks and men and airplanes, Hollerth machines cataloged prisoners, raw materials, and food, so all could efficiently and effectively go where Berlin needed them to, in the best interest of the German war effort. As for the prisoners, the unskilled ones, about 2.5 million, were sent to where their numbers could make a difference. As for those with certain skills, Dehomag tracked who was needed where, and the orders were sent out the machines calculating the best course of action. Those men going wherever they were sent, by which route the punch cards deemed most efficient. The little machines even played detective, and after a butter census was taken in Denmark, it was found out that some Danes were hiding vast amounts. With rationing going on for the last few years within Germany, that butter would be a welcomed surprise for the people working hard for the war effort. And, of course, those German civilians knew better than to ask what happened to those Danes brave enough to try to hide something the Nazis wanted. Then came the first cloud to darken the sky over IBM New York and Watson. 
After Nazi Germany gained control of Central and Western Europe, only 2% of the people in the United States believed that Hitler's war was justified. Clearly, the American people were on the path to one day actively backing the Allies, which left Watson holding his medal from the author of all this aggression and misery. What to do? During the dying winter and coming spring of 1940, Watson tried to stick to his talk of the Golden Rule and that what happened between Germany and Poland was a, quote, difference of opinion, unquote. But when other countries were overrun, it was time to seek advice. And as the head of one of the United States' largest corporations, there were few people Watson could look up to. So he turned to Washington and on May 16, 1940, sought the advice of Secretary of State Cordell Hull. Hull's response, well, instead of quoting him, I'll sum up. Oh no, you were on your own with this one, Mr. International. And as the U.S. government was clearly in the anti-Germany camp, German nationals flying in and out of America, all around America, on IBM's dime, was noticed by J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, the same month Watson tried to get Hall to give him cover concerning his Nazi medal. Now questions from Washington were being sent to Endicott, New York. But Watson, never one to run from a fight, or a potential one, did not run and hide now. He took hold of the reins and went to Undersecretary of State Sumner Wells on June 6th and said he was ready to tell the government anything it wanted to know about the German nationals in the U.S. employed by IBM. The information was gathered and sent to Hoover. And Hoover, being Hoover, said thank you, but had his men go through the files anyway. And this is what he found out. The men's information therein had them pegged as certainly pro-German, but nothing extreme and certainly not dangerous. But through their interviews, the agents found out that Watson left out a name, one Carl George Root. And here's the part where the background music would go, dun-dun-dun. Root was pro-Nazi, shouting with joy at the office after every Hitlerite victory. He was belligerent to his co-workers, anti-Jewish, a drunk, and worst of all, a pathetic salesman. So why wasn't he tossed out on his ass? long ago. Turns out that Root was married to Watson's niece, so Watson felt compelled to endure the unendurable. But now that the FBI was snooping around, Root had to be let go and was released by IBM within a week. But on that day, June 6th, when Watson went to tell Sumner Wells, well, almost everything, his day wasn't over. It was just getting started. When he returned to his office, his decision made, he pulled out a pad and wrote a letter to Adolf Hitler. He was returning his medal because, quote, the present policies of your government are contrary to the causes for which I have been working and for which I received the declaration, unquote. But Watson wasn't done. He also sent a copy of this letter to the press. When the registered letter made it to Berlin, the Nazi party and Hitler personally were celebrating the country's string of political and military victories. The Rhineland, Austria, the Czech state, Poland, Denmark, Norway, Holland, Belgium, Luxembourg, and France, which was all but beaten. 
And because of the timing, not that Watson planned it this way, this was seen as a slap across the face of de Fuhrer, the man himself. Gehring might not have been able to order the bombing of New York, but de Helmog had options, and within days of the news getting out about the returned medal, Rock and Heidinger were looking them over. On June 10th, Rock wrote to Heidinger that first, obviously, Watson was an idiot, and two, he had been fooled by the Jews who had escaped Europe. Three, they might all get shot for this, but if we don't, we need to think about de Helmog's future without an IBM in the picture. And this could be done by the two entities swapping patents. The Germans had been creative in their own right for the last few years. And if royalties had to be paid to New York, that money could be pulled and given over after the war at a negotiated rate. But behind these words and calculations was hatred, shock, and a sense of finally getting back at Watson, who had swindled Heidinger all those years ago, after the Great War. Within De Homag at large, there was whatever the German version of spitting after saying an enemy's name. Outside of the company, the German people felt betrayed by a supposed friend of Germany during its darkest hour. Beyond them, the German, or rather Nazi press, newspapers, film, and radio tore into the American businessmen. This wave of hatred widened out to all German-controlled territory and to Germany's allies. To add insult to injury, just like at the end of that show many of us watch each Christmas, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, Watson's picture, in this case, ironically, like the Burgermeister Meisterburger, was taken down, first in the Lichterfeld office, then from the offices in Stuttgart, Hamburg, Frankfurt, Vienna, and the rest following suit. And now, it's time for Heinegger's Putscht. Let's see if his was any more successful than Hitler's. The leader of the Dehamag immersed himself in German corporate law. Then, feeling ready, he sent a letter to New York on July 1st, 1940, saying he was convening a meeting to rid Dehamag of IBM's New York representative, Geneva-based John Holt, from its board. Now, this would become a 27-round fight with no clear winner, but plenty of bruises. On July 15th, Heidegger and the other board member, Gustav Vatk, Heidegger's brother-in-law, voted Holt out. But as the board had three seats and one was empty, the two men alone did not constitute a quorum. Okay, said Heidegger, there will be another meeting in two weeks to replace Holt, even though his being voted out was not legal. But the July 29th meeting was a stalemate. So Heidegger tried to simultaneously sick the Nazi party on the IBM-controlled Dehelmog, while at the same time trying to pressure Watson into buying his stock, worth 10% of the entire company, clearly worth millions of Reichmarks. Now, Watson hated to pay cash for anything, as Heidegger knew, but the IBM head had another ace up his sleeve. By 1940, Hull technology was completely intertwined with the Nazi economy, the war effort, and vital to the final solution in regards to the Jews. In short, Watson owned the patent to the unique paper the cards were printed on. He still controlled the other European branches that were feeding Germany the punch cards they needed, not being able to print enough for their own requirements. 
He controlled any additional machines made anywhere except Germany. He also controlled all the spare parts. Really, Watson had a whole deck of aces up his sleeve. While Heidegger was trying to separate Dehomag from IBM, the enraged Nazi party was trying to separate IBM from German-occupied territory by creating a replacement tabulating company. As far as the patents and royalties owed to IBM, well, hell, they were the Nazis, playing by their own rules. But even so, replacing and inserting a new process would take months, even years. And Germany was in the middle of a war of brinkmanship with Great Britain, while trying to digest the majority of France. This was not the time for a shutdown and refit. So, Heidegger painted a picture for Watson. One, New York could sell the complete Dehomag to the Germans. Two, Heidegger could take all the money that IBM had in German accounts, create new shares in the German branch of the company, and buy them with the money, which meant New York would still own Dehomag, but it would be controlled by the German shareholders. Three, and not that this was much of a problem solver, Watson could buy out Heidegger and his close associates, and then, well, to hell with New York, Watson, and Dehomag. But this would leave Watson and the Nazis facing off with no middleman, clearly not a recipe for success for New York. But stepping back a bit, at this point in time, this was, in a strange sense, a chance for Watson and IBM to step away from all that had happened with Hollerith technology and all that would happen with the war going on. But that was not the type of person Watson was. He had been fighting his whole life for money, for control, for position, or possession. And by now, this kind of thinking was second nature to him. The fight would go on. But not in the way most would think. Watson, to his credit, was now thinking long Long term. In mid-August 1940, he told his European representative in Geneva to give Heidinger most of what he wanted. Holt was out. A man named Ziegler, who was on Rudolf Hess's staff, was in. So was Schut Stahaus, another who was closely tied to the Nazi party. And Watson even agreed to a third member, Kep, who was trained in New York and had worked for Watson for years. All this became official on August 31st, 1940. And though Watson gave in here, he chose to fight everything else. No other tabulating companies would rise in Europe. He did everything he could to make sure that didn't happen, and was, for the most part, successful. But the cat was out of the bag now. Clearly, Dehomag was not a German-owned company. It's profits and control, not those of Germans. The Nazi party launched an investigation with its usual efficiency and exuberance. But Watson remained calm. After all, he remembered what happened during the last major war. If Nazi Germany took over the American-owned Dehomag, it would not own it. That's because, due to Nazi racial views, property of the Jews, Gypsies, Slavs, and the like were confiscatable, because they were less than human. But property belonging to Americans, British, and the like would only be held in a trust, because those persons were more or less equal to the Aryans. A trustee would run the business, the books kept, and then whenever the war ended, dues owed to IBM New York 
could be gone after. But the best part was that Watson could say, everything Dehel Mogg did after 1940 was done at the direction of someone else, anyone else, other than himself or anyone in New York. Real deniability. And so with nothing to lose, the irrepressible Thomas J. Watson challenged the Nazi party with everything he had. On October 2, 1940, Watson sent a letter to Heidinger's home, his latest in stating his case and his expectations. He was the boss, after all. What's more, the five-page letter was sent by Diplomatic Pouch via the U.S. State Department, because most of IBM's European executives didn't feel safe when it came to exiting the Nazi state, which was fair enough. IBM brass they may be, but accidents happened, had been happening since the shooting war had commenced. The letter by Watson determined nothing. So, it was time for a face-to-face. But not Watson's face, of course. He was persona non grata in German-controlled territory. Instead, Harrison Chauncey, his personal representative, would go in his stead. And although Chauncey could not have known this, his conversations started out with Heidinger, but would end up with a man who was two steps removed from Hitler himself. The Nazi party had to have Hollerth technology. The rest was just annoying details. The two men would do battle, verbally, for 15 months, Chauncey taking direct instructions from Watson, whereas Edmund Wiesenmayer, who advised Wilhelm Kempler, Hitler's personal economic advisor, was more of a problem-solver. He was never seen in photos, standing next to men of importance. His name was never mentioned in newspapers. During these negotiations, Wiesenmayer never signed anything, never wrote anything down, just went where he was told and made problems go away. And when he met Chauncey for the first time, he wore his SS uniform, so there would be no confusion as to his position. Something like, speak softly, but wear your SS insignia on your lapel. But Chauncey, though dealing with a fanatical Jew-hater, who never got his own hands bloody, but passed on orders that spilled a lot of blood, stood his ground. After all, Chauncey did have the law on his side. And again, the Nazis, because of their ideology, treated American property with a resemblance of respect. Wiesenmayer did his best to intimidate Chauncey by saying it would be best for IBM New York to just sell their control to Germany. It would also be best for Chauncey's safety. But still, the American lawyer held his ground. During the Battle of Words, Watson was getting some of what he wanted. No other tabulating company took over any Dehamog territory. And because of this, Watson kept sending the vital punch cards on special paper where it was needed, in German-controlled France, Poland, Bulgaria, and Belgium. This kept the German war machine going. It also kept the vinyl solution going as well. As time went by, it seemed obvious to all that soon the U.S. would come into the war against Germany. This caused Watson some panic, but it terrified Heidinger. If he could not sell his shares before a German trustee took over Dehamag, when a state of war existed between the U.S. and Nazi Germany, then those shares would be frozen and untouchable until the conclusion of the conflict. 
As 1940 wound down, any letters sent to Berlin were done through the U.S. State Department. Such was Watson's influence with Cordell Hull. Still, this did not stop the Germans from demanding that IBM become a minority shareholder of their own company, something that Watson and Chauncey were against to their core. So while Jews and other ethnic minorities were placed in concentration camps, shot outright or worked to death for the German war effort, these men in business suits and SS uniforms debated, made offers and threats, the other side counter-offering or counter-threatening. The war grew more horrible and spread to involve more people. Then came Pearl Harbor, with Japan and the U.S. declaring war on each other. Then Germany declared war against the U.S., which reciprocated in kind. The debate between Chauncey and Wiesenmayer was over. During the time between 1942 and 45, De Hamag, as Watson knew it, did not change. It was run by an advisory committee. They were the ones making decisions, contacting Geneva when things were needed, never offered or were asked why punch cards or more sorters were requested. And the men that made up the committee was Heidinger, Passau, chief of the MB, the agency that oversaw the use of Dehomach technology, a hand-picked trustee that changed over time, and finally, Hitler's personal representative, Edmund Wiesenmayer. He was now out in the light, did his job to the best of his ability, but also had time to oversee the death of 300,000 Hungarian Jews. Of course, IBM was not the only company to deal with Nazi Germany before and after the war started. Before Poland, before the Munich Agreement, times were confusing, and it was hard to know, really, what was going on. Again, these events must be viewed from a post-World War I perspective. When the U.S. entered the war, the U.S. government checked into businesses with international dealings and found that at least 1,800 American companies dealt with Germany, or some of the members of their senior management held pro-Nazi views. Again, murky times. Probably the other well-known major American company that dealt with Nazi Germany was Standard Oil of New Jersey. That corporation had a secret pre-Pearl Harbor agreement that had Standard Oil sharing their synthetic rubber process with IG Farben, but yet they did not share that with the U.S. or British government. Then-Senator Harry Truman called the Corporation's Act treason and an outrage. Before too long, that list of companies that dealt with Axis powers, including those from Latin America and Europe, had increased to over 5,000. So, business is business, money is money, right is right, wrong is wrong. But who decides where the lines are drawn? The victors and their allies. T'was ever thus.